At various points in her illustrious career, my guest today has been referred to as the most powerful woman in British sport. Ever modest, she will no doubt dispute that moniker. I, for one, would not find that a difficult case to argue. In her formative years, she was an elite netball player, representing Wales on 22 occasions, but it's her role as a sports administrator where she made her most significant impact, not least at UK Sport, where under her stewardship, Britain went from 36th on the medal table at the Atlanta Games in 1996 to second by the time the Games arrived in Rio in 2016. All this in only 20 years. She left UK Sport in 2019 and returned to her roots as president of World Netball, where she's in the midst of planning the next year's World Cup and continues to chart the game's course towards an Olympic debut. The engineer behind Team GB's phenomenal success in the 21st century, it is no understatement to say she has irreversibly changed the face of sport in the United Kingdom. It's my immense privilege to welcome Liz Nicholl to the podcast. Liz, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Seb. Liz, before we have a quick romp across the sporting landscape and your lustrous career to date, I always like in the opening conversation to, to really understand a little bit more about your background. I'm a great one for believing that we are all hewn from indelible experiences, uh, location, geography, friendships, family, education. Now, you were born in the Vale of Glamorgan. Uh, you were the sixth uh, of seven children. And I'm guessing you grew up in a sporting landscape, both at home and more widely. Well, I was, um, sport was always around me because my father was a sport fanatic and uh, he was a primary school teacher and he he uh, led the um, teams from the primary school boys teams. There weren't any girls teams then. Uh, in the football and cricket competitions. And so the um, television, small as it was at the time, was always on uh, on a Saturday afternoon. My, my mother was interested in the tennis as well. So, and I, I, I grew up amongst the boys in the family. So I had a bit of rough and tumble sort of start to my life playing um, in the fields, uh, in the playing fields near us and, and playing football and cricket. So yeah, it was always part of my life. Um, I'm guessing I'm guessing women's rugby hadn't really taken well, the uh, taken the centre stage it has now. It hadn't. No, it hadn't. It wasn't. So Welsh rugby obviously was big. Mm. Um, and uh, but my father was a football supporter. Not that he actually went to very many, many matches, but he was always wanting to watch the uh, the football results. But rugby, yes, if you're Welsh, and in my school days, you know, I did I did go to many a match at Cardiff Arms Park. Well, I, I'm of that era, Liz, where I went to Cardiff Arms Park for the best part of 20 odd years and didn't actually see England win until the <laughs> early 90s. So, you know, anybody that grew up in that Loughborough environment always realised that it was a it was a bit of a fool's errand to, uh, to to go down there. But look, you grew up playing various sports, but clearly netball was the sport that you excelled at. You represented Wales at two world championships. I think, 22 caps. Yeah. What, what were your defining moments in netball as a career, as a player? Well, the biggest the biggest moment for any athlete is, uh, is initial selection to a national team. That was just amazing, you know, and I felt, I felt excited and challenged. And it presented me with, a, with an opportunity to, to, to test myself against some of the, 
some of the best in, in the nation and then seeing the best in the world at, uh, at two world, world championships. And, and, and I think the defining uh, impact for me was the fact that I could see sport at a national and international level for the first time. And I always wanted to work in sport, but didn't know how to because sports, I didn't want to be a PE teacher because my, you know, four of my siblings were teachers and my father was a teacher. So I wanted to be something different and um, I wanted to work in sport and a sports science didn't, didn't uh, exist at the time. So it, it did absolutely cemented my resolve to move from, I just uh, achieved a chemistry degree at the time of my first selection to Wales, but I wanted to find a route to work in sport. And I found- and that was at Nottingham. That was, I did chemistry at Nottingham, yes. Yep. And then the Baroness Sue Campbell pointed me, who was my coach, netball coach at university. <laughs> I've known her, we've known each other for that long. She was my coach at university. And she pointed me towards the master's degree in recreation management at Loughborough. Uh, and uh, that was my first step towards my first job in sport, which was um, which is actually running the women's inter-university competitive um, organisation. Um, which then merged with the men's organisation. So, so, so am- amongst those amazing skill sets that Sue Campbell has, was she instrumental in introducing you to your husband, Andy, at Loughborough? <laughs> no, no, she wasn't. But the fact that actually uh, we met, we did meet at Loughborough when I was, I was playing netball and uh, um, we sort of spotted each other. He was, he was up on the balcony um, look, watching some of the, the netball um, training session and uh, that we didn't you know, speak to each other at the time uh, but then we uh, happened to be at the same at the same party one evening when and they were uh, they were few and far between but uh, that was a and it was a small gathering and uh, and he was there and and, and we met there and then um, but we didn't actually uh, really know each other until when I worked in women's university sport mm. um he worked for British University Sport. Yeah, so yeah. that's where that's when we actually met and got together. I'm, I'm only smiling at the thought of Sue Campbell being your your coach <laughs> because uh, I met Sue Campbell probably roughly at around the same time because I arrived at Loughborough in the late seventies. <laughs> my first meeting with Sue was a fairly eventful one because I'd nicked onto the track at Loughborough to do a training session and she was commanding the center of the uh, arena with uh, you know with a, a group of students and she came over to me and said to me what do you think you're doing and i sort of you know the the uh, the arrogance of youth i looked at her and i said well you know what do you think i'm doing and she looked at me and she said don't be cheeky <laughs> my first my first exchange with with sue and i always remember that that, that was the boundary that day. She was very, very much in charge. Um, I'm guessing what you're going to really, what you were really saying to me was that your career also pretty much laid the foundations for some of the things that you went on to do in international sport and probably was pivotal in some of the views that you took as a competitor into that landscape. Yeah, ab- absolutely. That journey was, I was just so... Um, it was just so opportunistic, actually. It just, it just seeing sport at a national and international level through playing for Wales at, a, at World Championships, you know, taking the master's degree at Loughborough, 
um, that gave me the qualification to work in sport, that opportunity to lead into university sport for a couple of years until the women's organisation merged with the men's, and then my first job as CEO of England Netball. And I think the biggest thing was I took on lead roles. So I was the leader of women's inter-university sport over the two-year period. I was the, I was the leader as CEO of England Netball. And that, that said, it actually uh, gave me the opportunity to attend meetings and conferences with other leaders yeah. across other sports. And the, the, the biggest um, impact it had on me was that I, I could look around the room and actually I could think, you know, I'm, I'm just as good as some of these people in many ways. Uh, so I was not daunted by, um, by that and, uh, and just grew in confidence as a leader uh, through those opportunities. I want to explore the role of women in sport towards the latter stages of our uh, discussion today. But I've always been of the view, and I'm sort of choosing my words carefully, because it's not to say that if you haven't come through a competitive background, you have nothing to offer in sports administration. But it's pretty clear to me, particularly the older I get, that the world in sports administration does tend to break down into two groups. Those that continue to see the world or their world through the eyes of the competitor, which, you know, when you're delivering a, a games or putting together a strategy for a sport, I think is, is, is pretty crucial. And there are those that with the best will in the world make judgments that are not always, and it's not their fault. They just don't see the world through the eyes of a competitor. And I've always found that a bit of an inhibitor uh, in the way that they go on to construct the, the landscape around them. Is that, a, is that a little critical for me to say that? Well, I think, I think uh, just um, the, 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 it's important to get some diverse perspectives, isn't it? So it's really important to have a perspective of the competitor around, around the table in terms of decision-making that, that impacts on them. Um, absolutely no question about that. But I think it's a matter of just balance, uh, so yeah. it's not it's not one thing or the other. It's about a really good, diverse balance. Let, let me park your uh, netball career for a few minutes because I'm now going to date myself here horribly. Um, in the early 90s, I actually sat on what was then the National Department of National Heritage, the bill committee for effectively the, the second and third reading of the National Lottery Bill. And I remember, you know, we'd just been re-elected in, in 92. It was my first stint as a member of parliament and they stuck me on this committee. Uh, and I remember John Major being very animated about the need to have fresh sources of funding into all our, the, the big planks of our national life. I've always said to John, that you know, all, all prime ministers, particularly at the moment, uh, are sort of thrashing around for a legacy. I actually genuinely think that John's legacy of the National Lottery is probably one of the most, you know, one of the, the strongest legacies any prime minister in pretty much any era has, has left the country. It, it's really changed the face of so many things. And, of course, the National Lottery really only, although we got the bill through Royal Assent, I think, 94, 95. It was only in 97 that the funding started to find its way into sport. It was just yeah. shortly uh, before you started at UK Sport, the, the body that oversees the, the distribution of those funds. 
I think it's fair to say that during your 19-year stint, and I'm now sort of carbon dating you a little bit, um, that you really did oversee a golden era. Your, you know, the teams won 117 uh, Olympic gold medals. We were never out of the top 10 Paralympics, 257 golds uh, and six consecutive top three finishes. I mean, that was a spectacular period, but I, I guess you would also pay the same type of tribute to the, the creation of that national lottery. Absolutely. It was it was the magic. The funding behind the athletes was the critical ingredient. And um, I, I remember those early days when the National Lottery came on board and it was initially just for capital buildings. Um, and I remember being part of a sports group that was actually arguing for it to be supporting athletes. And uh, it's it's it was it, it was absolutely invaluable. Um, the, none of the success could have been achieved without it. Because uh, what UK Sport invested over those years was a, a really good mix of national lottery funding and government funding, you know, just about 50-50 of, of, of each type of funding. Um, but it enabled the athletes to, to commit and, 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 and train and be supported full time. It enabled, enabled the recruitment of uh, you know, significant uh, you know, team, team members, that, uh, sorry, staff members. So, yeah, it enabled the, the recruitment of uh, some of the very best in the world to lead and support the development of athletes across our sports. I was actually chatting to William Hay, who was actually my boss for a period when uh, I was sort of chief of staff in uh, the party. William actually made me smile because he said on the Thursday, the cabinet meeting on the Thursday, and he was a young, he was a Secretary of State for Wales at the time. He said the Lengthiest discussion on the agenda was the National Lottery because the National Lottery went live on Saturday. And the big discussion <laughs> around the cabinet table led by John Major, the prime minister, was should the cabinet buy lottery tickets? Because if they didn't, they'd be seen as, as unpatriotic and probably slightly doubting the importance of it. And if they did and one of them won, the nation would forever believe <laughs> that it was, you know, it was always fixed. And he said it was one of the bizarre uh, cabinet meetings that he sat through. So, look, the impact, the impact was fantastic. And obviously, from my point of view, you know, we wouldn't have had the teams that we had in 2012. And we certainly wouldn't have had half the infrastructure, actually, in East London that has yeah. pre presented such such a strong legacy. Yeah, it's had an outstanding impact, as you say, in capital facilities and the opportunities that are presented to athletes across such a wide range of sports to to succeed at the very highest level. Um, so, yeah, just uh, absolutely fantastic. Couldn't have couldn't have happened without the national lottery. So, let me explore another aspect uh, of that because much of the success is down to what we've sort of referred to, well, I think it was actually properly identified at the time as the no compromise approach, which in simple terms, uh, and correct me if I'm sort of oversimplifying this, but it was really to make sure that the funding went very specifically and very carefully with proper metrics to determine how, you know, the, the best shot we had, uh, particularly in Olympic sport, of, of getting athletes up onto that podium. Where was where did that philosophy actually originate? Was that something that you had absorbed from your own career? Was it something that was very much set in stone at UK Sport? Because it was it was quite 
it, it, it was quite a change of direction, really, from previous years. Yeah, it, it was. So um, the credit for it, this needs to be given to Peter Keane. So in, uh, so in between um, uh, Sydney and uh, Athens, just before Athens, Peter was recruited from British Cycling. He was leaving British Cycling, but he was a talent uh, there. And so we took him on as a performance consultant. And what Peter had done uh, with British Cycling is actually because um, the progress of athletes, uh, cyclists, can is quite measurable, um, then he uh, had an approach to assessing the future potential of athletes by, by also looking at, you know, what what the greatest athletes, what the Olympic medal winners in, in each of those disciplines had, what the journey was like. So Peter uh, was already in cycling, focusing on what he, what he would say is focusing on the right support on the right athletes um, for the right outcome. And, uh, and he brought that approach to, to UK sport. And it was timely because uh, in those early days, um, UK Sport was not a direct lottery distributor, and we had to work with the, all of the sports councils yeah. for them to contribute to the total amount of money that was needed. Uh, and so there were, there were always questions about how many athletes across how many sports do we actually, how much money is actually needed? Because this wasn't our money that was being that that uh, we were spending. So the no compromise approach was a basic philosophy of investing. Um, in the right athletes for the right outcomes and uh, uh, accepting that if you spread that too thinly, then it would dilute the impact of the investment. Uh, yeah, that's, so that's where that came from, derived from. And, and it had, had an amazing impact in terms of a principle built into the approach was that of providing equal support to athletes of equal talent. And that actually over the longer term had a very significant impact on the number of athletes across a wide range of sports that achieved medal success, and particularly medal success by women athletes and medal success by Paralympic athletes as well. So the no compromise approach was quite a fundamental principle that actually did have a very positive impact on the development of the system. And I think one, uh, one of the core elements I think you're absolutely right to flag up, which people tend to forget, was that distribution of the fu of funds was to, to federations was uh, or the athletes within those federations was regardless uh, of the size of the federation or the influence of that federation yeah. it was very yeah. much aimed at if you had a, a a competitor from a sport that wasn't necessarily flying high in terms of of, of profile it was still worth investing in that competitive. Absolutely. If, if, if there was evidence that that athlete was on a yeah. trajectory towards medal potential, we were investing in that medal potential. Uh, I, I'm guessing the challenge here was not just about the implementation, but as in a way, as you've alluded, the extra scrutiny that goes with spending money that actually ultimately derives from the public purse, which is what the National Lottery lottery was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that um, approach and the way that we could evidence the fact that we were investing in the right athletes uh, actually helped when it came to the 2012 opportunity, because the 2012 opportunity is very different. In every Olympic and every Paralympic sport had the opportunity to be there and compete. And so the potential cost of investing over that length of time was um, very significant. Um, and 
uh, again, Peter did a terrific job in terms of taking that cost per athlete approach to establish a budget that actually gave government options about their investment. You invest X million pounds, we could actually realistically target X in the medal table, uh, this many athletes and this many, this many potential medals and this potential outcome. So it was, a, um, it was the start of a, a very compelling case to government for significant amount of funding for the 2012 journey. Uh, so um, again, it, it was it was a very important part of the the structured approach to our investment. Do you think that scrutiny made you a better organisation? Um, I think we were open and transparent, and we had a big commitment to being open and transparent. And so I think that does contribute to uh, to how how good organisations are. To some people, of course, there was the flip side. Uh, of no compromise. Some would say there was a sort of uh, a darker side which put governing bodies under pressure and competitors under pressure, public levels of expectation and scrutiny uh, that we've talked about. I mean, basketball, I always remember basketball because, you know, we were making, you and I were making pretty much the same journey to the same, to the same games. Basketball felt that they'd been left behind and there was a sort of an obsession with medals some executives, some some athletes complained. That in itself must have also given some quite challenging moments and questions that as an organisation you had to answer and be able to identify. I think the um, it started though with the 2012 opportunity where every yeah. sport, every sport, Olympic and Paralympic had the opportunity to be there because they had entry as the host nation place. So that in the lead up to 2012, all of the Olympic and all the Paralympic sports at that time did receive funding through to 2012. What changed was post-2012. And of course, when you're focusing then on 2016, there was an acknowledgement that some of the sports were highly unlikely to even be able to qualify to be at the Games. And yeah. that's where these difficult decisions were taken. And it was it was quite hard for our board because we knew it would be very negative. And we knew that, in fact... Um, I mean, there were some sports that actually had had developed over that period leading up to 2012 to an extent that they were likely to qualify. But some of the team sports, it's very hard internationally to to uh, to qualify in some of those team sports. And um, so they're the ones that really missed out. You know, the the volleyballs, handballs, basketballs, uh, uh, they were not funded after 2012. So I think it's uh, it was the right decision. But it was uh, it was a tough one for the sports and the athletes concerned as well, because they'd enjoyed support for the journey from about 2006. The funding flowed for 2012 um, to those other sports. Look, I think this was a, a, a balance of judgment and, you know, fairness will always you know surface in these debates. The, for me, the proof of the pudding was going to uh, Rio four years afterwards and really being the first uh, the first city that had hosted a Games to actually come back with a greater medal haul in the preceding Games uh, on, on foreign shores. And I that was the day I decided to retire from the British Olympic Association because I didn't actually genuinely think it was, it was ever going to get any better, but it had little to do with me, I have to say, in my four-year tenure. I think the aim here was to 
Uh, but the impact of 2012 was amazing. You know, we all felt the pride, pride of the nation on each, at each of those medal moments. And so um, our commitment at UK Sport was to try to continue to deliver those medal moments that would make our nation proud once more and, and to support every medal opportunity that we could see uh, was, was feasible. Uh, a, a lot of the sports had made some great progress over that journey to, during that journey to 2012. So yes, that was, that was amazing to, to, to do what no, no host nations had done before and win more medals post-game, post-hosting was extraordinary. And it was touch and go. It was very close. I remember it went up to the last weekend, but it was uh, it was a, a fantastic moment. But, you know, said so very soon after 2016, the UK sport has always, well in advance of the next game, started to look at the strategy post the next games. So well in advance of just after 2016, work began on a new strategy for 2024, um, because a compelling case has to always be made to government for, for continued funding. Um, and it was right at that time that, in fact, the board at UK Sport agreed that we need to now start to think about whether there's another tier of funding opportunity we can provide for the next group of sports behind those that have strong medal potential. And, and, I, and I'm delighted to see that that new strategy rolled out now. Uh, by UK Sport, by my my successes, and and it's the right thing to do. Do you think the journey between 2012 and 2016, in pursuit of uh, a bigger medal tally with all the expectation off the back of London, was that a tougher journey than the 2016 to 2020, uh, with all the the attendant challenge of the delayed games, the COVID yeah, yeah. Uh, pressure that it put our teams under? When you look back, what was the what was the tougher uh, quad for you? Well, um, bear in mind that I retired from UK Sport in July of nineteen. COVID hadn't hit, so I left UK Sport thinking this was another four year cycle where we're expanding our strategy. We were still working on the detail, uh, and then COVID hit, and and nobody could have anticipated that. And I I think that was the biggest challenge that the world has faced, to be honest. And so the the journey to 2016 was nothing compared to that. The journey to 2016, we were just building on all the experience we'd had in the lead up to 2012. And and I think what what 2016 benefited by from the fact that actually sometimes you might lose key personnel across the systems after home games. So you might lose them to other nations. But actually, we retained many athletes, many many uh, individuals in, in key roles through because 2016 in Rio was a, a really attractive proposition. So that that I think was um, a relatively a relatively easy journey, just applying all that we learned over the previous time. The, the journey to Tokyo was a, a completely different learning experience for everybody within the system, athletes and support personnel and, and leaders at every level. Uh, from an international federation's perspective, I think the hand-to-mouth, you know, day-to-day modifying, trying to figure out how to keep your athletes in competition and, and yeah. training camps was... Yeah. Well, I mean, it's something that we, we'd never experienced before. Let me take you into slightly kinder territory. So since it first debuted in 1990, the Commonwealth Games has been pretty much a haven for netball. 
Uh, I remember being in New Zealand, not that, well, probably about 10 years ago on World Athletics Business and waking up one morning going, as I always do, to the back page of the newspaper. Uh, it wasn't the All Blacks <laughs> that were yeah. centre stage. It was the fact, I think, New Zealand the night before had, had won uh, a, a, a big international tournament. Uh, and I was very pleased to be able to sit with you, with you actually in, in Birmingham and introduce you to the biggest netball fan <laughs> from my sport, Daily the, one and, the one and only Daley Thompson, who when I, was with, uh, when I was with him at the Commonwealth Games in 2018 on the Gold Coast, he actually told me that he wasn't coming with me to watch the final afternoon of track and field, which famously is always your relays afternoon. He was actually going to watch... I think it was. I think England were playing in the final of uh, of the netball competition. And I, I sort of I looked at him at first, thought he was joking, but of course, when I uh, said come up to the Commonwealth Games with him, he said, "Yeah, but I do want to go and see the netball." You very kindly allowed that to happen. So the the fixture is really, I guess, the Commonwealth Games is is very much a microcosm of what makes the Commonwealth Games yeah. uh, so special. But there are continuing doubts, questions about um, its long-term relevancy. Just how significant has the Commonwealth Games been for netball? Where, what do you think the future is? I mean, I'm a great believer in the Com Games, but is it is it re-engineering itself? Is it doing things that really set it apart from the other competitions? Well, well the Commonwealth Games is an important part of our four-year calendar in netball, beyond doubt. We've been in seven editions so far, and our, our top 12 teams are all Commonwealth nations. In fact, a significant percentage of our members are Commonwealth nations, two-thirds of our members are Commonwealth nations. And we, when netball is played in all 72 of the, the, the Commonwealth um, nations that are um, affiliated to, to uh, the Commonwealth Games. Um, and, and I think that it's important for netball because we... We share some of the same values about um, the impact that sport can have across the Commonwealth, and particularly for us, for women and girls. It's life-changing in, in terms of opportunity. So we believe there is a, an important future for the Games, and we want to support the CGF in terms of ensuring that they and it remain relevant. I think it's an interesting step they've taken now to uh, give the host nations very significant flexibility in terms of shaping the programme. That's quite a bold decision to take. And, uh, you know, for every sport, it will present some opportunities and, and risks. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. I would like to see a clearer, uh, a clear differentiation between uh, the Commonwealth Games and the Olympic Games. I think they are distinctly different at this point in time. They they feel different. They feel different in terms of the way uh, it, it, it feels, you know, they talk about the Commonwealth family. It feels more like a family than it does a big commercial event that happens in every, every uh, two to four years. So I hope it will retain a lot of its uniqueness. I hope it will continue to focus on um, the impact it has positively on lives uh, across the Commonwealth. You know, I think of Africa, you know, the Pacific Islands, yeah. some of the small nations in the Caribbean. And, and, and so I think the Games are very important for them and their community and their 
their feeling of involvement and engagement and, and the opportunity to succeed and interact with uh, the rest of the Commonwealth world. You know, so there's no language problems really in the Commonwealth, are there? So that's why I think it's it feels like more of a family uh, because the, the 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 challenges are very different in the Olympic environment. Yeah, so that so my, my view is it's important. Like, I I want to continue to see the differential between the Commonwealth Games and the Olympic Games. Of course, you must be buried in planning now for the uh, 2023 uh, we, Netball World Cup in Cape Town, which again is a is a massive landmark moment. Which is uh, like it's the first time it's been hosted in South Africa. Exactly, and that was why they were they were successful. It's the first time it'd be hosted in Africa, so we're yeah. very excited about it. Uh, we had a, a board meeting at the beginning of September in Cape Town, and uh, so we have seen the progress they're making with the preparations. A fantastic uh, you know, planning of the venue. So, so, so Cape Town was chosen, South Africa was chosen because of the potential to have a huge impact on the, the development of the game across the continent. So netball is played in every nation, but the, the investment is needed to capitalise on that, the, the uh, strong participation numbers and to grow participation further. Uh, and South African government and provincial governments are working on a domestic and international legacy programme. So with their bid for the Games came, it was attached to that was a legacy programme, legacy commitment that will support the development of the sport in, in Africa. Um, and particularly upgrading of community facilities across their, their provinces as well. And, and Netball South Africa has got strong um, coaching and umpiring structures. Uh, so they are sharing their expertise now with other countries in Africa in, in, in this lead up to, to the, the World Cup. It will, be, it will be a very popular event. It will be a sellout. Uh, there no no question about it. And uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to uh, supporting uh, Netball South Africa and their organising committee in, in delivering you know an event that uh, they can be proud of and the whole world of netball can be proud of. I thought well, uh, I know Daly's looking forward to his invitation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just over a year uh, since you rebranded. You went from the International Netball Federation to uh, World Netball. Now I know why we rebranded as a sport. We went from the International Association of uh, Athletic Federations. Uh, and after the first 20 minutes of trying to explain to anybody what that acronym meant, uh, plus the fact that, um, choosing my words carefully, uh, we also were trying to uh, rebrand re ourselves because of some of the challenges that we'd been through as well. Um, your rebranding was very much about globalizing and letting people realize that you were a world sport was that part of the strategy so it wasn't driven by the strategy for Olympic inclusion but I think it supports it, it it's a clearer message about who we are our world isn't as big as, as as many international federations worlds are but we are world netball and we are growing uh, a lot beyond the Commonwealth now. So our rebranding was about, well, every four years, we will revise our strategy and refresh it. But we thought that, in fact, the, the communication of netball would be strengthened by the simplicity of the brand World Netball. And behind that is, uh, is a complete new strategy, building on the work that's been done over many, many decades, uh, but simply looking at three key areas of growing the game, 
playing the game and inspiring through the game. So it is about increasing our global participation, our reach, our revenue, our capacity to do that and, and growing our visibility. And then our, our play um, strategy is about driving game development. Um, you have to keep looking at your core product and making sure you're continuing to develop it and, and worldwide delivery of thrilling world-class events. So we are working hard now with our nations to look at a, a, an international calendar that's more aligned yeah. and showcases, whether it's at a world level or at an international level, our sport more frequently to, to more people. And, and I think the other thing we're doing on this is, is, is linked to our, uh, and this is also linked to the future sort of Commonwealth um, bid challenges that we might face is that we have a version of a game called Fast Five. So we have the seventh yeah. version of our game, we have Fast Five. Yeah. And we can see when you look at the, you know, the Olympic ambition, um, many of the new sports that are added to the program are individual sports and there are limitations to the number of athletes. So big teams are going to be more difficult to get included. So Fast Five is, a, is an opportunity for us as well. Um, it's good for the sport. It's good for opening up opportunities that we might not otherwise have. And Cape Town next year is very much a part of that narrative. Cape Town next year is really important. It, well, you know, any any event that we have that can showcase netball yeah. at its best is absolutely critical. And you know, the the, the African nations are becoming more and more competitive. Um, we now have got several in the top in top six nations in the world, which is which is absolutely brilliant. And we've got more nations that are serious contenders for the World Cup medal places than we've ever had before. Um, and that's that can only be healthy. Let me sort of draw my thoughts to a conclusion here, because you've been incredibly generous with your time. But I do want to talk about something that, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about, and that is the role of, of women in sport and yeah. not just on the field of play. I referenced in my opening remarks that uh, during your time at UK Sport, you were referred to as the most powerful woman in British sport. You must be very proud that UK Sport, uh, as an organisation, has consistently led the way. Uh, in having female executives leading the organisation. You and Sue Campbell worked in, in tandem. Uh, Kath Granger is now uh, chairing the organisation, Sally Mundy, uh, the, the CEO. I personally believe this is a really, really important beacon uh, for the development of women, particularly in administrative roles. I don't think you're going to disagree with me, but we've still a long way to go, haven't we? We've, we still have some way to go. And the more women we can get into key leadership roles uh, that are visible, the better. Because, uh, you know, that saying about you've got to see it to believe it is true. Um, you've got to believe that it's possible. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I share your view. I'm absolutely delighted that we've got uh, Catherine there as, as the chair, has been there since 2017, and Sally now as the, as the CEO. But what I'm also uh, really um, delighted about is actually the impact of the governance code that was introduced and developed by UK Sport and Sport England and the other home nations together. And we are now seeing but many more uh, women on boards. And, and I think there's a broader acknowledgement that um, boards can derive huge value from taking a broader perspective uh, with diversity of thought around the table, 
And, and I think there's an acknowledgement that boards should reflect the diversity of their stakeholders. And for too many, for too many years, uh, boards have missed out on the talent and perspective that that women bring can bring to decision making. Um, so I'm I'm delighted. There's a it's been a massive change over over recent years, and long may that continue. Where do you see the remaining inhibitors uh, sitting, and how are they best unblocked? Um, I think I think the governance code is a serious unblocker. Uh, because the sports that receive public funding are required to adhere to it. And as more and more sports uh, organisations take that on board, then others who don't depend on um, public funding are more likely to, to take that initiative themselves because they can see the obvious benefits of it. But, you know, the biggest change in terms of women's sport over recent years, uh, very recent years, uh, Seb, has been the changes in football, cricket and rugby, the traditional men's sports. That has been enormous, enormous and not before time. And it's, it's, it's just fantastic to see you know, the opportunity that women and girls now have to participate in those sports, the opportunity that talented women have to compete at the highest level and make a career in those sports. And the profile that those sports are now getting in the media, which has been extraordinary over the last two to three years, only only the last two to three years, it's been absolutely fantastic. I I tend to equate the the journey that women's sport has been uh, making over the last decade with the same journey that actually Paralympic sport has made. Mm. I, I remember, you know, London was... I think you, you and I would both agree. We talked a lot about the Olympic Games, but actually, for me, the game changer in London was the Paralympic Games. The change of sea change of attitude towards disability and impairment in the workplace, in educational establishments, um, and for me, the what I'm now witnessing is is you know. It, Pre-London, people were investing in the Paralympic Games because they saw it as a as a good CSR project. They're now investing because they see it as elite sport. Yes. And I think there's a very similar parallel in, in women's sport, particularly the success of the uh, England football team over the last um you know, the, over the last summer, you know, and, and you've got Angels FC in in Los Angeles. Uh, you've got FIFA unbundling the women's uh, the sports rights within the women's game, which has which has made a, a huge difference. Do you see that trend continuing? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just it's just the start. I think the value of women's sport has been underestimated for so long, and yet we're now seeing real evidence that there is true value there that can be derived. You just look at the fan base uh, that that those sports are attracting now. Uh, and the commercial sponsors that are now really interested in those sports and the profile and the, the messaging that comes from these talented young women uh, actually uh, has an impact on encouraging others to to participate and, and go for it because the door is now open. So I think it's just been, a, 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 a the words you use, a sea change. It's been absolutely terrific. And it's still at a relatively early stage because, you know, with greater investment from their from sponsors or their lead body, um, then the the, the development could be fast-tracked even more. 
because uh, I think the, you know, the capacity is probably still, I, I mean, I don't know the detail, but my guess is that capacity behind the scenes isn't as great as it is in the men's game. And actually, you know, you need people to make things happen. So um, that's what I'd be, I'd be thinking about as a, as, a, as a future opportunity. This is the start of an amazing, amazing journey. And, you know, when I'm leading a sport like netball at a world level, I'm quite envious we we don't have that uh, opportunity to draw on the men's game and so our challenge is is very different our challenge is uh creating a sport that's open to all and welcoming of men participating in netball and so we will learn from this experience of uh, that we're witnessing um, in terms of the development of opportunities for women in those major team sports. Well, well if, it's, if it's of any comfort, uh, as an agency, we hosted a lot of events around the European Women's European Football Championships last summer. And the overwhelming message we got was not just about the commercial interest that there is from brands uh, of aligning themselves with, obviously, the, the profile of, of yeah. English or, or, or the women's game. They were also looking at a whole range of sports and um, recognising that they actually commercially, they just don't want to miss the boat here. So yeah. I think that will have acted as a catalyst for so many other uh, properties in sport. Liz, I, I have kept you well over the allocated time. I could go on chatting to you all day. Let me thank you, first of all, for agreeing to be in the hot seat today. I hope you haven't found it too hot. Uh, to thank you on a personal note, because you and I made pretty much the same journey to London 2012. It's barely credible. It's a decade ago now. And, you know, we put the show together, but you certainly stocked the shop window. Uh, and it's those are the indelible memories that people now take from London. Uh, and thank you for everything that you've done uh, during your time in, in UK sport, particularly the powerful advocacy for uh, the role of women uh, in sport at every level. So thank, thank you very you. much for being with me today. Thank you, sir. Could I just say one thing before we finish? And I would say the greatest achievement over that time on the journey to 2012 was the way that sports were encouraged to work together and align behind a common goal and a common strategy and to support each other across sports, to share their experience. And my hope is that that approach continues because uh, we're all better when we're working together. Well, if, <laughs> if the last few days hasn't uh, shown that, uh, then nothing ever will. But amen to that sentiment. Liz, thanks for being with me. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you, Seb. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSN 